The Gist is brought to you by The Message, a new podcast from GE Podcast Theater. Hi, Nikki Tomlin here, and I'm the host of The Message. I'll be following a team of elite cryptographers as they decode a highly classified radio transmission. To sum it up, extraterrestrials. The Message on iTunes. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Tuesday, October 20th, 2015 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Justin Thoreau is prime minister of Canada. The guy who is married to Jennifer Addison, Justin Thoreau. Just wait. Okay, hold on. No, it's Justin Trudeau. I'm going to make that mistake a lot, I fear. So let's hear from Justin Trudeau. Les Canadiens ont choisi Canadians le have chosen change, real change. Okay, that was a little Justin Trudeau through an English interpreter. Bilingualism in Canada is more than just a cute party trick. It's almost mandatory if you want to win national election these days. It was Pierre Trudeau, Justin's father, who cemented bilingualism as the norm. And I've got to say, the sun sounds, to my untrained ear, a perfect francophone. Well, a Canadian francophone. My experience with Canadian francophonie is limited, like cross-check is double échec. But let's hear the new PM pivot to English. have chosen change, real change. Sunny ways, my friends, sunny ways. This is what positive politics can do. Whoa! You know, whenever you hear a bilingualist in general, to me, that's like a superpower. That's like when you see a dog walking down the street and all of a sudden it gets up on its hind legs. That is really cool. But whenever you see someone perfectly, speaking perfectly in one language, and then flip unaccentedly into your language, that's like the dog walking down the street, then standing up on its hind legs, then walking into the coffee beanery and offering an iced chai latte. And true, the dog will probably take the iced chai latte on the ground and lap it up in that way. And Trudeau will probably make a gaffe. But dogs are dogs and politicians are politicians. So at this point, I want to congratulate Justin Trudeau. I want to tell him to keep his damn hands off of Angelina Jolie. That has gone wrong for Jennifer too often. And you know, right now, I think about America. And I think about who Justin Trudeau's partner is going to be to the South. If, if a Democrat is elected president in the United States. It's either going to be Sanders or Clinton. They're both unilingual. If it's a Republican, if it's an actual Republican with government experience, it will probably be either Marco Rubio or Jeb Bush. They're both bilingual, but if it's one of the two Republicans who are currently leading the polls, the only Spanish that they will know is build that wall a little higher. So I just have to say to Justin Trudeau, you certainly have your work cut out for you. Today in the spiel, we go back to the back to the future too, too. And on the show today, the guts, the glory, the story that is Columbia football. Wait, didn't the Columbia football team come off of two winless seasons? Yes, yes, they did. And that's what makes the podcast about them so damn compelling. There are temples in America, temples of football, Lambeau Field, Bryant-Denny Stadium in Colorado. But can you place this temple of football, the Robert K. Craft Field? at the Lawrence A. Wine Stadium 
as part of the Baker Athletic Complex. It is the longest name of any field in football, but it also is the place of perhaps the least amount of glory because when it comes to college football, Columbia University is a fine academic institution. But you know what? This makes for a great story and a great podcast because the Columbia Lions have not known many victories, but oh, the stories they have to tell. So this year, all this season, Ilya Maritz of WNYC is putting together a series on the Columbia University football team. And it's an interesting pairing, right, Ilya? Uh, yeah. This, this is why I say that. Ilya, define a flanker. No, uh, no idea. Cut What's a, a double A gap? Uh, <laughs> great, I hope to see on a paper. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'll give you an easy one. Who is Bart Starr? I've absolutely no clue. Okay, very good. Well, Cam Molina can... Ilya is the man behind this series, and Cam Molina is actually a player for Columbia University. Hello, Cam. How you doing? What is a double-A gap? Double-A gap. I guess technically it's a defensive term for, yeah. like, you know, having defensive linemen lined up in a certain... It's it's one of these stupid football terms. We used to, back when I was a kid, say a blitz up the middle, which is just as good. Now we say double-A gap. Well, the great thing about this podcast, or among the great things, is that it works on the level. I'm a huge football fan. I've been to Columbia home games before I knew there was a good podcast about it. So I am totally satisfied as far as the football goes. And yet, if you're not football-oriented, not only is it a story of, and I'll let you describe how universal the story is, but you'll say things like Andrew Luck, who went on to become a good quarterback for the Colts. So there's a lot of context there. But Ilya, why do you want to do this story, given that you're not, say, the biggest football fan in the world? I really like the idea of diving in deep on an institution and kind of learning how it works. And when I heard from our news director that this thing was happening up at Columbia, where basically the best coach at the Ivy League, the coach with the best record, was going to to supervise the team with the worst record and try to turn them around, I just thought, okay, something something is going to happen. You're guaranteed drama. Either it is like the breakthrough and the music swells, or maybe it's a little more mixed or you have your disappointments. But either way, like... I'm interested in that. The only question is, can I learn enough about football to tell this story? And you'd never been to a football game before? Not in record? my life, no. So how... <laughs> <Cam> <laughs> didn't even I don't know think that. I told you that, Cam. No, I, yeah. <laughs> no idea. No. So how... Uh, this is great because sometimes the outsider's perspective, like someone who's good at reporting and good at observing and good at communicating, you put that guy in the field and sure, he's never covered a war, but man, you get some of the best war reporting out of that kind of person. I'm hearing that from your football reporting, but what are some things that strike you as, I can't believe this goes on, and when you tell people who know football, they're like, yeah, this this is pretty normal. Well, I was kind of astonished when I even learned that there's like over 100 players on the team. I mean, <laughs> I think I knew that there were 11 men on the field, but uh, like I didn't realize you need so many guys to make a team and like a dozen coaches. I mean, it's a massive operation. And this um, is Columbia. This is... Division one, but really the lowest rung of division. Right. So one. even yeah. even to be like a team that is struggling to be competitive, like you're spending a lot of money and you're putting in a ton of effort. And Cam can talk about this more, but I know that he and his fellow players, like being a student is a full time job. Being a player is a full time job. And watching your like position meetings, I was in uh, I was in the running backs meeting, and like it was like watching hours of tape. It was yeah. kind of boring, and yeah. you were paying, like, a crazy amount of attention. Yeah. How'd you come to Columbia? How they convinced you to play oh, for this team God. that wasn't exactly a powerhouse when you signed up? I guess for me, like most other people who do commit to the school, like, you're committing to the name almost first and foremost than anything else, and 
I know for a lot of people that play Ivy League football in general, like you have that plan in the back of your head that, you know, like what's after football. So for me, that was definitely something I thought about and really considered. And definitely the city itself. I mean, New York City is just one of those places that draws you in. So, I mean, on my official visit, I fell in love with it. I, we took a bus tour through Times Square and everything, saw the lights. I guess that's a great sorting mechanism. Some kids will be totally turned off and some kids like you will be turned on. But even if the city is a great inducement, I can understand if you're a basketball player and you want to play at St. John's. Or if you're a football player and you want to go to Fordham, right, which is in the Bronx and a very good football team for their division. Columbia is a little different. Columbia has, well, when you came, you're a senior? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And are you a fifth year senior? No, I'm fourth year. Okay, that's good. So what was their record the year they were recruiting you? Do you remember? Uh, Oh, jeez. I want to say it had to be at least two and eight. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, I mean, like, it wasn't great. Uh, and I actually was, I've been, I've seen so many different staffs since I got here. I've been recruited by the coach that was here before Mangarian, uh, and then stayed on recruiting. Mangarian was two coaches ago. Yeah, he was the last head coach we had. And then the one before that was the one that actually recruited me to go here. So then he got fired. Um, and Gary decided to keep me after seeing my film, and then now we've gone. <laughs> I've seen a third one come through, so I've, I've seen a lot of different styles and like the just the way the program's been dealt with. So the last, this was the as we speak to you. First of all, they post when the the episodes, Ilya. Oh, uh, Thursday mornings. Okay, so we have just the the latest one is. Uh, their one win. They've won a game. That's right. It's uh, against Wagner College, one of three New York City universities that has a football team. So go New York football. (laughs) Take the win. So so it's a win. Uh, Columbia hadn't won last year. But during, you use the episode of the win to sort of tell the story about how the school ousted its last coach. And that must be fascinating from a human relations perspective, from an organizational perspective. And I'm sure having reported on business, there were a lot of parallels. Well, like the constituents of a football team, when you really look at who are like the like the the voters there or the constituents, or I think I compared them to shareholders in yes, that episode. A shareholder revolt. The yes. shareholder revolt. It's the alumni. Who are the guys who are there on really cold days and really cold nights? It's guys who played for the team like 30, 40 years ago, and they know Cam's name and they know the game, the names of all the other guys in the box score because they really pay attention. You know, only the people who were there know exactly how it played out. But the last coach was ousted, and that is what cleared the way for this kind of legendary, amazing, interesting figure, Al Bagnoli, to come in and take control of Columbia, a guy who is used to winning games, but he has now lost a few, and uh, we're watching him deal with that too. What's Coach Bagnoli like? He's a player's coach, and that was the biggest difference between him and Mangarian, which was he just kind of understands a lot more of what we go through and has, like, a sensitivity to it. And I I saw that immediately with the way he changed our schedule around. We were used to doing 5 a.m. wake-ups for practices. We'd have our lifts, our meetings, and everything all done by about 10 o'clock and then go do class for the rest of the day. And at that point, you know, like, you're... you're... <laughs> this was, is what doesn't make sense to me. Ivy League players, it's Division One, Division Three players, they don't get scholarships to play. You get financial aid, but you don't get a scholarship. So to not be a player's coach or to be such a hard ass, it would seem a much bigger lift when the guys really don't need the school. Sure, it helps you get into the school, but they're not going to kick you out. They can't take away a scholarship. So it would seem to be a silly, unless you have a lot of wins to show for it, it would seem not to be the smartest way to go about coaching at your level. No, yeah, definitely. He, Mengeren was stubborn. I mean, like he had his own like method of way of doing things. And I, 
it's seeing as how he coached in the NFL for several years and had a different type of background. Yeah, and where the guys are incentivized coaches. with exactly. Big pay but, and, and I don't think he did yeah. a good job of kind of trying to find that balance between like what incentivized us to still even play, knowing that we're not getting a scholarship and we're still doing the same, if not more, work than you know every single other program we see. So. I mean, we a lot of us lost the love for the game. I'm not even gonna lie. Really? Yeah. It was it just kind of there was no way to enjoy yourself. There was no way to have fun while you were there. And Bagnoli, from the moment he's gotten here, has said we want to make football fun again, and that's exactly what he's. I've done. heard that so many times. Make football fun again. Yeah. The mentality all of us have had to practice is how do you just move on from that and try and just get better and do like the same thing next week but better. Obviously, over the past two years, you know, you go you keep losing games like that. It just gets harder and harder to do. At that point, I mean, that that's why the, having a team and having guys that you can rally around and just kind of lean on just in situations where neither of you know what to do, you just kind of like just you're in the dark just trying to fight it out. I mean, that that's that's where kind of like our treasured experience with football has come from. Ilya, what surprised you most and least about getting to know this subculture? You know, these guys are all really brainy. They all have a good brain uh, on their on their heads. And uh, I guess I probably should have known that but it, it really made an impression on me what surprised me the least uh hmm. i'll just say i was like pleasantly reassured kind of early on i was like making myself watch football games on youtube as homework to just be like can you can you follow the ball can you see where the ball is do you know instinctively which team is offense and defense at any one time and after actually after less time than i expected i started being excited by what I was watching. Cam, a couple questions. Your did you do you talk to any friends who are at different D one schools and compare your experiences ever? Oh, definitely. I mean, uh, my best friend actually, who he played at Stanford for three years. He actually just left after three years. He plays for the Lions now. He got drafted last year. Who's um, that? Uh, Alex Carter. We we used to talk to each other all the time. And you know, also being at Stanford, which is a great comparison to Columbia, being that like it's a prestigious academic institution, but they're playing big time football. Out there. Yeah. And also they have every resource in exactly. the world. Yeah, scholarships yeah. too. I mean, like it's just it's like the same experience but still different. And the funny thing is, like he said even on their campus, like there are some people who don't like athletes. And that is because they feel like, you know, they got into the school strictly because of their athletic merit rather than being able to say, like, yeah, I did the work, the academics and all the extracurriculars just to be able to make me qualified to go here. That's where that gap between uh, the student body and the athletic programs, it's always, that's where it is. It's yeah, everyone outside is like, ooh, a Columbia student, but everyone inside is like, oh, a football exactly. player didn't really earn it. Maybe they're not taking into account the 20 hours exactly. that you're and allowed to play, but of course exactly. the workouts. 20 is how much the NCAA allows a team to practice. So. Doesn't count games, doesn't count the workouts you do on your own. Mm-mm. So you're ta- we're talking about full-time job for you, like 40 just hours a on, season? Just under. It can't yeah. be by much. And I mean, like even for us, like one other component that we have to deal with is our, our facilities, like over 100 streets away from our campus. We take yeah. a 20-minute bus ride, 20, 30-minute bus ride every day. So that's an hour you spend just traveling, Yeah, and, you know, just to get to practice and back. So, I mean, there's a bunch of things that a lot of people just don't think about, uh, especially like when you look at athletics or college athletics at Columbia in general. So, I mean, like and all of us, like most athletes – at the uh, school, no matter what sport you play, you're taking that bus ride up there. What's your major? A sociology major. What are you going to do with it? Ha! <laughs> uh, I'm slowly figuring that out. And now that I've become a senior, it's just a more pressing question where, you know, you get closer and closer to football being over and you're wondering what the next step is. So I, I can honestly say I have absolutely no idea yet. I'm smelling the whiff of grad school coming off here. You know, <laughs> 
My dad's actually pressing me a lot to go to grad school. Right uh-huh. now, for me, it's two things. One, I don't know what I would do in grad school. I don't know what the next step for me academically is. And two, the money. Yeah. <laughs> I say coming out of Columbia, I'm not. I'm not going to be in a great place financially. We said so, there was no scholarship, but they try to meet financial aid, but you're still in debt from oh, this whole experience? Yes. Oh, yes. We've had to find ways to make this work. Jesus. So, I mean, I, it's all up in the air right now. I'm trying to just, you know, settle down and enjoy senior year for what it is, but, yeah, I got some decisions coming up. So. Do you think football has put you in a better position for employment as a person? Definitely. I mean, the experiences I've had while being here have just made me that much stronger. Like the ways I deal with adversity all come down to my mentality towards it and my perspective that I come out of it with. And just I know I know going forward that like almost any situation I'm dealt with or have to deal with now, I'm I'm gonna be fine. Like it it really doesn't get much worse than going through the things mentally that I went through the last couple of years. So I mean, like, I can't really say what football is going to do for me going forward, like, you know, specifically, but I, there are a bunch of things I can take away from this experience. Do you, I don't know if you're going to pursue this. We talked about, you know, more stories to tell in the season, but do you think the pivot to season two would be a bigger time college football or pro football or just taking the idea of examining a subculture and you could do a season with something that's not even sports. I love it. I mean, we, we've talked a little bit about like following like a cultural institution, like an orchestra or something like that. That, <laughs> that would is, make the WNYC is, like, donors. So, I know. <laughs> all right. Look, if this Columbia football thing led to studying the opera, then it's all worth it. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I mean, speaking for myself personally, like this has been a great experience going out of my comfort zone. Like good. Like, so if the next time it's, I don't know, flight school or something. Like, sure, why not? I, flight I'll, school. I'll learn about that. <laughs> yeah, I'll tell you, I'm, I'm open to any suggestions. Ilya Maritz is the uh, reporter behind the season. And Cameron Molina, number 31 in your programs, number one in your hearts for your Columbia Lions. You can listen to the season on, go ahead, plug it away, Ilya. WNYC.org slash the season or wherever you get your podcasts. Wherever you get your podcasts. We're recommending against Stitcher, but that's up to you. Thank you guys all very much. Thanks, Mike. It's been really Appreciate fun. Appreciate it. The Gist is brought to you by The Message, a new podcast series from GE Podcast Theater. Hi, Nikki Tomlin here, and I'm the host of The Message. I'm going to take you into an elite cryptography think tank and check it out. Their top project right now is to decode a highly classified radio transmission from the 1940s. Have you listened to it yet? Not yet. Uh, We're having a discussion about that. But if I offered you the chance to listen to it right now... Uh, Sounds like a no. Well, we don't really know what it is. Voices, music, breathing... But, you know, I'm not going to mess with that thing. To sum it up, extraterrestrials. Subscribe to The Message on iTunes. And now the spiel, hey you, get your damn hands off the future. Tomorrow's Back to the Future 2 day. The day that Marty McFly goes back to the future, then back to the past, then toggles a little back and forth. I gotta admit, the sequel wasn't as tight as the original, and we still don't have hoverboards. What do you mean we're in the future? October 21st, 2015. Marty, we're gonna be able to see our wedding. Wow. So I'm a day early on this Back to the Future 2 thing, but we do have a time machine. In fact, you're inside it. 
It's called On Demand Podcasting, not predicted in the movie, whereas USA Today in paper form was a pretty powerful media force. But we do know you can listen to this podcast on October 21st, the day Marty made his trip. We also know that statistics tell us that on that day, Ben Carson will have said something unbelievably ignorant, which his defenders will call honest. Now, see what I did there? I made a prediction about the future that wasn't actually intended to get things right. I mean, he only says an insane thing like once every 10 days. What it was intended to do was to comment on and appeal to people in the present. And that's the purpose of Back to the Future, too. That's the purpose of all sci-fi. Heinlein, Star Trek, Asimov, Arthur Clarke, they're all their obsessions and their areas of knowledge, and they use sci-fi to issue warnings. A sci-fi writer is a social critic with an unlimited time horizon. We're drawn to dystopian sci-fi in particular, not because we never considered that that bad stuff could happen, but because it confirms our fears. It flatters us for being aware enough in the present to have these worries. It validates the time we spend fretting. It gives focus to insecurities about which we may actually have no control. And I think that most sci-fi is dystopian because the motivations for writing sci-fi in the first place are that an author is inspired to set a story in the future because he wants to comment on how things will change. If you want to write a love story that's universal or a comedy of manners, there's no point in setting it on the third moon of Yazoo in the year 3145. You do that because you want to say something about present day trends. By the way, this is a lot like how rain works in movies. It never just rains in a movie like it rains in real life. Rain is always a plot point or has something to do with mood. The present is a default. The future is a choice. The way drama works dictates that the upending of expectations are more interesting than confirming them. So futuristic hellscape is more compelling than futuristic nice escape. It strikes me that politics works similarly. Whenever a politician talks about the future, explicitly or implicitly, remember, our presidential candidates are running now in 2015 for a term that spans from January 2017 through January 2021, and they're always talking about the future. It's either morning in America, or we're going to hell in a handbasket, or we're going to lose the fight to the Soviets, no wait the Shiites, no wait the Sunnis, no wait Putin, or we're setting ourselves up to fail economically to China, no wait that used to be Japan, that was the country that made everyone nervous. Fujitsu-san, konnichiwa! McFry! I was monitoring that scan you just interfaced. You are terminated! Terminated? No! No! It wasn't my fault, sir! No politician and no sci-fi writer ever posits that things will be mostly the same. Sci-fi and political vision has the quality of obsessing over a smallish problem now that we fear will metastasize. Politicians and sci-fi writers latch on to what makes us insecure, and then they blow it up. But I don't think the future actually works like that. Yes, every problem has its antecedents, but I think it's easier to trace backwards than to predict forward. Right now, the candidates are asked, who's our greatest enemy? It's usually a choice between ISIS, some version of ISIS, and Putin. Sometimes China gets thrown in there. But what about, I don't know, what about Pakistan? What if, what if Pakistan falls into the wrong hands? They have nukes already. Remember when Back to the Future 1 came out? It was the Libyan terrorists who stole plutonium and shot Doc Brown. 
The next huge problem could come from ISIS. Who knows? Maybe it'll be Pakistan. Maybe that society, that government will crumble and then radicals of whom the population is rife will take control of a fully nuclearized state. India has nukes, by the way, too. And if motivated suicide bombers want to do us in, it is folly to predict what society will be the breeding ground for the 2021 equivalent of 19 guys with box cutters. Politicians are like sci-fi writers in that neither group is actually trying to get it right. They're just trying to appeal to the current audience. But sci-fi writers, that's all they're trying to do. Politicians actually become presidents and elected officials. And when they do, it will be smart for them to be humble in their certainty about where the next threat will come from, but smart about adopting blanket policies that will lower threats in general. Make the world more wealthy. Make less of society unequal. Minimize the damage your enemies can do wherever they come from. Nurture a culture where U.S. society is full of hopeful people who are interested in making the rest of the world better. A precondition for that would seem to be that U.S. people have their own material needs met. I don't know how to do this any more than I know which parts of Back to the Future 2 will one day come true and which are just the stuff of what some minds in the mid-80s imagined. Well, except one thing. I could say one thing with 96% certainty. The Cubs ain't winning the World Series. Cubs win World Series. Against Miami? And that's it for today's show. Andrea Salenzi, the GIST producer, has recalibrated her flux capacitor to operate on 2.38 gigawatts. Andy Bowers, the executive producer, baked a cake for Uncle Joey, who still failed to make parole. The GIST, where we're going, we won't need roads. Roads? Where we're going, we don't need roads. Um, Peru, de Peru, du Peru. And thanks for listening. <laughs>